Let's go ahead and pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Um, well, in case you didn't know, we are continuing in our study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, Ecclesiastes is the uh, parable of the uh, unjust servant, or the parable of the dishonest servant, for the whole Old Testament. It's one of those books, like, what, what is that about? What am I supposed to make of this? Um, and I think I've covered some of the ideas of uh, what it is and what it is not. And I'm going to do a little bit more about that today, uh, but then we will also move on. So last week we focused on the fact that this is a weary and worn out world, that it's tired, we're tired, nothing's new, nothing changes. Um, I can imagine that uh, Solomon telling us that everything we might achieve in this world, oops, just gave it away, telling us that everything we might achieve in this world is meaningless, that human life and human history are transitory and futile, never seeming to reach a goal or fulfillment, that we are never satisfied with what the world offers to our senses, and that nothing truly new or unique happens in history might be a little depressing. Might be. So first thing this morning, I thought I would briefly and partially address this problem now rather than hold all of it uh, for the conclusion of our study of Ecclesiastes. I, I mentioned last week that uh, interpreting and, and even reading Ecclesiastes is like following a meandering river, but it's not a meandering river going nowhere. But Solomon wants you to take the whole trip so you understand what this is all about. Um, as, as in, um, live through the story and don't just leap to the end. Unfortunately, sometimes it's necessary to give some hint as to what's coming. So, for example, if you flip to the back of Revelation, you do know the good guys win in the end when it comes to history. Uh, first thing I wanted to say that Solomon isn't being pessimistic. Um, I'm not pessimistic. Um, I am a realist, and so... I'm aware that uh, the power of positive thinking is a very powerful force in American thinking. However, there have actually been studies done on the power of negative thinking. So there's a book, uh, there's, an art, there's articles, articles in The Atlantic, uh, articles in The Wall Street Journal, saying that those people who uh, exercise negative thinking actually uh, frequently turn out better than those people who are always sunny and rosy and thinking that the best will happen, because as a matter of fact, the best doesn't always happen. But he isn't being pessimistic anyway, and he isn't even really engaging in negative thinking. He isn't saying that you can't achieve anything in life. Uh, he himself achieved more than Bill Gates and, and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos combined, uh, and he, he owned an empire. And he isn't saying you shouldn't try to achieve anything. 
So in Ecclesiastes 9.10, he says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Now, he does say, because after all, there is no work or planning in the grave, and that's the final destination of everyone under the sun. That's, that's the end of the game, game over. Uh, the Apostle Paul does give us a more happier motivation for hard work when he writes in Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not men. But Paul also says that anything you might achieve in this lifetime is nothing compared to the gift of God, to paraphrase. Um, That doesn't change the truth of what Solomon has said. It it adds to it. Um, you're, You're going to die, and you're not going to take it with you. I hope I'm not depressing anybody. Well, because week after next, we're going to talk about death, and that might depress you even more. Um, Solomon also offers what uh, is still good financial advice uh, as far as you know, working and achieving. In Ecclesiastes 11.6, he says, Sow your seed in the morning and at evening. Let not your hands be idle, for you do not know what will succeed, whether this or that or whatever both will or whether both will succeed. This is not a counsel of despair or catatonia. Don't sit in the corner and, and like Eeyore say, oh dear, oh my, or we're all doomed or something like that. And should you achieve something through honest effort and hard work, then as Solomon has said uh, in, the, in the lesson we've uh, looked at last week, go ahead and enjoy the fruits of your labor. So Solomon isn't being pessimistic, but he is being realistic. For one thing, failure is an option. Uh, Most of us never achieve our dreams, however we conceive of it, uh, and that following your dreams is a particularly American and Western piece of advice that's based more on expressive individualism and really on anything the Bible has to say. So we never achieve our dreams and simply have to adjust our lives accordingly, and many of us do quite well with that. I, I did not become what I had anticipated, but I became something. I didn't sit down and say, well, I didn't get what I want, so I'm just going to quit the game and go home. And just because you don't live out your dreams doesn't mean you can't enjoy life. Most of the enjoyable experience we have in life has as much or more to do with who we do it with uh, than with what we have uh, or what we're doing. Uh, Elsewhere in Proverbs 15, 17, as a matter of fact, Solomon says, Better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened calf with with hatred. So something simple uh, done with people you love is much more joyful than something elaborate or luxurious that you do with some people you can't stand to be around. True joy only comes with contentment, not with always striving to have more and better. So that's the first thing to say about what Solomon has been saying. I'm I'm not denying the first part. Uh, This is is not the power of positive thinking of Solomon. Uh, He does say everything you achieve will ultimately come to nothing because it will. A second way I'd like to address the problem of the seeming, seeming depressiveness of Solomon's declaration is by looking at the contemporary first world malady, the fear of missing out. How many of you are familiar with 
fear of missing out, also known as FOMO. Sometimes it's thought to be just a, a malady of uh, millennials and later and having more to do with social media. It does have something to do with that. But uh, the term maybe didn't exist, uh, but the, the, the idea and the concept and the sensibility has existed since ancient times. Um, fear of missing out is a feeling of anxiety caused by a sense that one is losing or has lost an opportunity for some social interaction, new experience, popular event, profitable investment, etc. I missed, I'm missing out. Uh, and a lot of it does have to do with uh, young people on social media, but that's just because it's become more public that way, not because it doesn't exist everywhere else. This may be accompanied by the feeling that life is passing you by or you are not living your best life now. You know, I'm missing the boat. Um, Got to move down the highway so life won't pass me by. Um, I, yeah, I actually researched that phrase, your best life now. Um, you know, sure, Oprah came up with that phrase. And actually, some people report that she was the originator of it. She wrote a book in 2005 that had the phrase in it somehow. But as far as I can figure out, the phrase actually comes from Joel Osteen, the paradigm of prosperity preaching in America, whose book, uh, Your Best Life Now, preceded Oprah's by about a year. It's a fascinating book, um, not for its good advice, but for what many people take to be Christianity, but is nothing of the sort. But we still feel like somehow we're missing out, that we could do better um, in some way. Um, and while I was doing researching, I couldn't help. I found this meme. I reworked it a lot, uh, a little bit, but, but there you go. <laughs> Things Jesus never said. Um, it, it always surprises me. Oh, I don't know. I, I guess maybe I'm not as cynical as I should be. Uh, it, it surprises me that so many people fall for that stuff. And I, I, it's just, again, it's not that you shouldn't be joyful, that you shouldn't work hard, that you shouldn't try to achieve, but you, you ought to be reasonable. Um, you know, God doesn't really just want you to be healthy and wealthy. He wants you to be righteous and like his son, Jesus Christ. Um, anyway, um, fear of missing out can also involve envy over the perception that others are having better experience, better lives, or more fun than you are. So this, this is a malady that you know, goes back to Cain and Abel. Um, I'm not sure if you'd say exactly that Cain had the fear of missing out, but he did feel like he missed something of a blessing from God, and he was very angry about it. Um, so what does Ecclesiastes have to do with that? I'm glad you asked. So Solomon's repeated frame that all things are hebel, meaningless, fleeting, futile, frustrating, pointless, absurd, encourages believers not to set their hearts on what cannot last and must be lost. Uh, and this is, this is actually not restricted to, to ancient Israelite wisdom. Every religion in the world, well, except for maybe uh, Scientology, but that's not really a religion. Uh, every serious 
established religion, uh, Hinduism, Muslim, etc., basically says money won't buy you happiness and that having riches and wealth is no indication of God's blessing. But, but nobody ever believes it. Um, that's what we really strive for. So his repeated refrain encourages believers not to set their hearts on what, what cannot last and must be lost. Don't store up your treasures where thieves break in and steal and moth and rust corrupt. And reinforces the insurance that, assurance that everything we might have considered gain in this life is rubbish in comparison to what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, it really is the case that if, if you miss out on the health and wealth and prosperity in this life, in, in that sense, you've, you've missed nothing. Now, if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, well, then you've missed everything. He, Ecclesiastes keeps us focused on what really matters in life. Uh, after all, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits, forfeits his soul? Again, this is, this, Solomon is not a screed against people working hard and getting wealthy. Um, I, I do believe one's going to get wealthy, you should do it honestly, obviously. Uh, it's not true that behind every great fortune is a great crime. I, I don't believe that. Of course, behind many great fortunes, there are great crimes. Um, and people who get rich, I mean really rich, uh, millionaires, billionaires, uh, do tend to have a uh, more difficulty with giving up their money, at least in the spiritual sense, than people who don't have. But uh, people who are uh, in poverty can love money just as much as people who are rich. Um, if you actually think money is going to bring you happiness, fulfillment, or eternal life. There's actually a transition at this point, so I was going to ask at this point if anybody has any questions. That's really about last week's lesson, because, again, Solomon is you know, going to keep this up. You know, he's, he's not going to let up. He, he's going to keep telling you that, that everything is Hebel, and you say, well, what do I, no, that's Hebel. But what, wait, no, that's Hebel. It's all Hebel. Everything you do in this life... For the wrong reasons, especially, is going to be Hebel. But I did want to point out that he's not saying certain things that we sometimes think he might say. He's saying, you know, don't work. He's not saying don't enjoy life. He's saying don't expect what it's not going to give and pursue it like it's going to give it. Anybody have any questions or comments about that? Yes, Miguel. Yeah, I had two kind of questions about this whole FOMO thing. You mentioned one that um, this idea that goes as far back as Cain and Abel. Is it also something that happens in the garden with regards to the fall? Well, that's, I hadn't thought about that. So Miguel wants to know if uh, fear of missing out goes all the way back to Adam and Eve's temptation uh, in in the fall. So... Satan says, look, God's telling you just to do what he says, but you're, you're missing out on this. So that's quite possible. Um, certainly, fear of missing out can be allied to sin. Uh, it can result in envy. Uh, certainly results in anxiety. And excessive anxiety, I think, is sinful. We do it anyway, but I'm not, not trying to be... Uh, 
judgmental here. So yeah, in a sense, uh, Satan told, told Eve, yes, you're missing out. Uh, God is holding you back. You're missing this opportunity. You're not living your best life now. So yeah, that good point. Uh, and your second question was yeah. My other one, maybe this is too big. You can you can put a pen in it if you'd like to. Is it feels like there's like an individualistic FOMO. Like I would be missing out. Like I would fear missing out on things my friends are doing. But it also feels like is there a kind of a cultural or institutional. Um, FOMO that happens or fear of missing out that also happens with like uh, regards to like I know about a lot of Christians who long for what church life was like a hundred years ago or nostalgia or or yes ha- fear of having already missed out and we'd like to have that back mm-hmm. or group FOMO I haven't done any research on that but uh, group FOMO that, you know I'm not a psychologist um yeah, that's possible, uh, but in, in some sense, like I'm an Anglican because I think uh, one of the reasons, because I think a lot of other churches are out of touch with their history. It's like Christianity started last week, um, and you know we're, we're doing it this way now, and this is the way we're doing it. doesn't matter what everybody else did before. I've always had a problem with that. So I can't really fully answer your question because, like I say, I, I don't know. But so could you give an example of group FOMO in church? <laughs> well, I mean, the kind of, um, yeah, almost like a, the, like you see this when you see all the people, like if you go into a Christian fiction section and it's almost all Amish romance oh, novels. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Like the kind of long. It's a for, thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's a very weird thing, but it's a, it dominates that section of. Huh. Yeah, I know what you want. Um, I'm 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 not a, I'm I'm aware of the sub 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 genre of Amish romance, Christian Amish romance. Um, I. Yeah, I'm not sure we would call that fear of missing out. We might call it fear of having missed out or nostalgia. Nostalgia can be sinful, too, if you dwell on it. Just, you know, because... It's sort of the same kind of thing, though, because you're longing for a thing that's actually never existed. You're longing for a thing that's never existed. I like that phrase, but okay, yeah. I mean, it's not really a whole lot more helpful or practical than some of it. Right. It is kind of imaginary. But we can do that on an individual basis. I long for things to have back that I never actually had. So. Did, John, did you have a question? Okay, I thought I saw your hand. Um, I wanted to bring that up, uh, not just to discuss what's going on in the world today, but to show that Ecclesiastes does really have real-world implications for what's going on, and really good ones. Um, it, it can come across as, you know, being depressive uh, and cynical, but, but it isn't. It's just realistic. Everything you do really can't, can't buy you happiness. In that case, why are so many rich people unhappy? 
Um, it can't buy you one more second of life. We'll talk about that later on in the lesson. Uh, and it certainly can't buy you eternal life. So, well, let's now continue with a wrecking ball that Solomon swings at our fondest wishes and dreams. Um, so last week we talked about this is a weary and worn out world. This week we'll talk about we're captive on the carousel of time. And those of you who know, I'm, I'm stealing that from a Joni Mitchell song, um, uh, The Circle Game. Um, and her song, does, it, does anybody know that song? Okay. The song really, she tries to put a positive spin on it, but, you know, it doesn't really work. Uh, the seasons go round and round, and the pony, painted ponies go up and down. We're captive on a carousel of time. We can't return. We can only look behind from where we came and go round and round and round in the circle game. I guess it says about a lot about me that after nearly 50 years, I still remember the chorus to that song. Um, um, oops. Okay, well, let me go ahead and read. Actually, let me back up a little bit. Let me go ahead and read the verses we're going to uh, investigate. I'll read them all right away. Uh, again, it's a meandering river. So, this idea of being captive to time is spread throughout the book. This is probably, uh, this is one of the most well-known and I guess best beloved passages in Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 10. There is a time for everything and a season for every activity under heaven. And if I start singing that uh, bird song, just stop me. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them, a time to embrace and a time to refrain, a time to search and a time to give up, a time to keep and a time to sow. A time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear and a time to mend, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What does the worker gain from his toil? And chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Consider what God has done, who can straighten what he has made crooked. When times are good, be happy, but when times are bad, consider, God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. And chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Um, 
So these verses are saying that we are not the masters of our fate or the captains of our soul. Uh, Another line from a very famous poem called Invictus, which ends, I am the master of my fate, I am the captain of my soul. But no, no you're not, Um, neither am I. We are captives on a carousel of life and time. To use another metaphor, we're carried along by a river, which we must travel to the end. Um, We can't swim back upstream. We'll look at some of the lessons that Solomon teaches us about our life in time. Uh, The first one is that time, time is both our taskmaster and our dance master. And again, Solomon is not going to say that time is already always a harsh taskmaster. Although I sometimes think when the alarm goes off well before I am ready to get up, I think I think that it is. And all that we do and all that happens to us, we cannot escape or alter time. We don't even know what it is. Um, Augustine in his Confessions which is much better than Rousseau's confessions. But he said, well, you know, as long as nobody asks me, I know what time is. But when somebody asks me, I, I really couldn't say. So it's, it's a complexity. Um, the only real, it's just a joke, but the best definition I've heard of time as a one-liner is it's just God's way of think, keeping everything from happening at once. But it seems to be a real entity because it is malleable. So if you know your physics, you know that at very high speeds, approaching some percentage of the speed of light, time in a very fast-moving rocket ship, for example, would seem a lot slower than to someone who was stationary. And that's the only thing I'm going to say about relativity physics. So time is a real thing. We just don't quite know what it is. And what we usually do when we talk about what time is is deal with our perceptions and our feelings about it. So time is our taskmaster and our dance master. In all that we do and in all that happens to us, we cannot escape or alter time for good or bad. We have our memory of the past for good or bad, our hope or anxiety for the future, but we cannot move backward or forward in time. As, as much as one of my favorite science fiction plot lines always involve time travel, they're fascinating. And it's fascinating to think about what you could do if you could go backward in time or forward, even in your own life, but in some aspect in history. But of course it can't be done, and warp drive isn't real. Um, so looking again at uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, it goes back and forth, a time for this, a time for that. But I don't think they mean what most people think they mean. This is not a wistful, sentimental reflection. I know it makes its way onto greeting cards and uh, Christian calendars. And, and then there's that bird song written by Pete Seeger and made famous by the birds, um, which I won't sing again. So, to everything there is a season and a time for it. It's a great song, uh, you know. Everybody now, no, just. Uh, and it's not just a sentimental reflection about remembering the times of our lives. So, oh, there's a weariness in the repetition of this refrain. There's a time for this, a time for this, a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that. 
time for everything. Um, it kind of reminds me of the phrase, and I can't remember who said, uh, everything in its, a place for everything and everything in its place, and even trash has its own receptacle. Um, there's this idea that uh, uh, we are reminded again and again and again that it's time that's in charge and not us. We are creatures of time, not its master. We are tightly held in time's embrace, and time leads the dancer. You know, as they say, you know, time flies when you're having fun. Um, time drags when you're not. Time's fun when you're flying. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, unless you're terrified of flying, I'm not. I I I, I would like flying uh, if if I were in the cockpit. Um, when I'm a passenger, I mean, you're just sitting in a metal tube, you know, it's just listening to air rush by. Um, flying is the fun part. Um, in the movement of time, we have limited control in the way the events of our lives move back and forth between good and bad, unpleasant and unpleasant, joyful and tragic, even for people who seem to have mastered the world. It's really not the case. Uh, we can't have one and not the other. We can't have the good without the bad. We can't have the joyful without the tragic. We can't have the pleasant without the pleasant. Um, in the book study, uh, I think it's this week's lesson, we're going to learn that, that Freud is a hedonist and a sexual hedonist, and he tries to make it into a whole worldview. And the whole reason and purpose for human beings is to maximize pleasure and and eliminate pain. Now, I'm not for seeking out pain, just so you know, but as a matter of fact, pain is part of life. Um, and it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So time is a zero-sum game. Uh, you lose it, it's gone, and you can't get it back. While only God knows the quantity of time in each life, if time is actually a quantity, we know we cannot add to our time, not by worrying, as Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 27. There's a typo in your notes. That's one of the many places it's different. Not by worrying, not by hurrying, or by multitasking. You, you can't add time. Um, one thing I have noticed... Um, you know, I came to adulthood just as computers were becoming a thing. Um, first PC, a personal computer, was 79. Um, it was either, depending on who you believe, it's either the IBM PC or the Tandy Radio Shack TRS-80, um, which no longer exists. But and And what I noticed over the many years as technology became much more... Advanced. Uh, I used to tell kids, "Look, now there's more there's more computer power on your phone now than was on the Apollo space mission that went to the moon." And that's not an exaggeration. It's not a hyperbole. Um, but of course, as the ability increases, so do expectations. So I don't know if you've noticed it, but when you when you have the means, people expect much, 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 much more from you. So uh, there's a certain franticness to 
to American life, uh, and there always has been. We, we have always been about being busy, but it just seems to get worse with technology. So we have to use just as much time, but we're expected to do more. Time, time lost can never be regained. We cannot see the future or plan for every contingency. Uh, looking at 9, 11, 12 again. Uh, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift. You know, for every American idol, there's a thousand idol wannabes who failed. Um, I watched American Idol a few times, like a long time ago, and, and uh, I, I used to avoid the early, uh, the early stages because they deliberately had people on who should have been told by somebody they had absolutely no talent whatsoever. And they did it to get ratings. It was embarrassing. People, they were allowing people to embarrass themselves because they didn't know. And, of course, it gave Simon Cowell an opportunity to... Uh, but then there were people who were really very talented, but they still didn't win. Um, I can remember maybe two idol winners also, even if you do win. Like they say, if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong, nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned. Why not? Because time and chance happen to them all. Moreover, no man knows when his hour will come. His hour of what? Well, his hour of death. As fish are caught in a cruel net or birds are taken in a stare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Um, we have to deal with the time we have and the circumstances we're given. Um, we can't see or plan for every contingency. Time, chance, and circumstance often catch us unaware and unprepared for good or bad. Sometimes good things do happen unexpectedly. It is true that not a sparrow falls apart from God's will, and knowing that is a comfort. Uh, but God does not give us a detailed personal itinerary of our future. God does love you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life but he isn't going to tell you exactly how that's going to work out. We don't have a detailed personal itinerary where we will go and what will happen to us. Life happens. Time and chance are real. Now, that's more than, you know, stuff happens and then you die. That's true. But stuff happens, and along the way, God is present with you, even if you do not know precisely what is going to happen. Time and chance are real, they're just not ultimate, but it doesn't mean we don't experience them as real. This gets really complicated when you think about um, human will, God's sovereignty, God's complete knowledge of the future, and things like that. But Solomon isn't really going to talk about that, so I'm not going to delve into it either. But time and chance on our level under the sun are really real. Things happen to us. God may know exactly how things are going to work out. We don't. He doesn't tell us to put it in a simplistic way. How much time do we have? It's uh, 11.39. Okay. I just got a little bit left. So our lives cycle through repetitive rounds of personal experience 
and social routine, no level of achievement or pleasure can lift us from the plane of temporal existence that begins with birth and ends with death. Try it sometime. You know, it, it doesn't work. People do try it. Uh, they do it in a metaphorical sense. If you ask any great, highly achieving person who's really kind of clueless about ultimate things, uh, even them, if you ask them, well, do you believe you're going to die someday? Well, yeah. But sometimes deep, 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 deep down, we want to deny it to ourselves that somehow or another we can lift ourselves above this plane of birth and death. We may enjoy life when we can, but life's pleasures are always fleeting. And don't even dwell on that, dwelling on the ephemerality of, you know, I had a nice cup of coffee this morning, but it's gone. Actually, it's not gone. The last little bit of stuff that's getting cold is in my thermos in the, in the car. But um, I, I, find, I find joy and pleasure in the small things, but, but then, then they're gone. We sense we are meant for more and we long for what lasts, but under the sun, we are not made for eternity. Not yet. Um, And that will be the subject of next week's lesson. Anybody have any questions? What kind of questions might you have? Anne? Um, Well, so... So was Jesus stressed? Boy, that's a question, isn't it? So let's, let's, let's psychoanalyze Jesus from a 2,000-year difference. I, I, was he stressed? Sure, he sweat. Like, whether it was actual blood, like hematidrosis, it's called, or whether we're talking about big drops that might have been like blood, you know, when, when he was uh, praying in the garden. Was he stressed? Yes. The only thing I can say is, well, however Jesus felt, uh, he never sinned. We do know that. So he, he had a mission in life. Um, I, I think uh, every believer, uh, I think everybody, but particularly every believer, has a mission in life. Um, uh, th- it might be one of my favorite lines from one of my favorite movies, Chariots of Fire. Um, a uh, guy says you can you can praise the Lord by peeling a spud if you can peel it to perfection. And and so I, I think you know I think one of the just just so you know I'm trying I don't think it's sexist but just I think one of the most important jobs in the universe is is being a good mother and a good father closely after that. So I mean that's a calling. Um, I being a a, a good teacher, being a good plumber, being a good anything, um, you know, being an upstanding citizen is a calling. Now, within the general calling that every Christian has, there are more specific callings to what we call ministry, but all Christians are called to minister. So Jesus had a very specific three-year calling. Um, was he stressed? Sure. Did he suffer anxiety from... Um, uh, doubting whether God was actually with him. No. Uh, there's always that cry of forsakenness on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've, but uh, many, many Christians and many pastors forget that's the beginning of Psalm 23. Uh, the end says God has not forsaken him. Uh, read the whole psalm. Um, 
So that's a whole theological thing. But yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure of your question, but uh, I, I think if you realize that what we're doing here is simply the, the vestibule for eternity, it can give you a sense of contentment and calm. Now, it doesn't, you know, we, we need what we need physically. And God says if he dresses the lilies, if Jesus said if God dresses the lilies like this, how much more is he going to provide for you? That's one of those less to more. Um, so, did you have another follow-up question? Because well, I wasn't. It wasn't like it was just kind Jesus of. Jesus like, was stressed, yes, but it doesn't. He didn't sin. And, it, right. It's just the balance between trying to be sort of in a hurry and cramming things in, and sort of never think. I mean, uh, maybe it's just. Well, one thing I read that I agree with is. Jesus. If you read it carefully, Jesus was never in a hurry. I mean, his friend died because he was taking a long time to get to him. And Jesus said, well, if he sleeps, he'll do well. And uh, uh, he, he had timing. It was God's timing. But he never seemed to be rushed in in a hurry like sometimes like we do. He, so. he knew from 30 to 33 roughly that he had a mission. And he knew about how much time he, that it was going to take. I don't think there's any doubt he knew when that hour was right. Going. Um, did that help any? Well, I mean, I, I guess I'm just trying to make it, I mean, it's, I'm not really expressing it well, so I'm sorry. I, I just, you know, it's like God rested, you know, and told us that, that he rested after he created the world. And it's just a kind of thinking about what your goal should be in modern life. I mean, obviously... It's just, I mean, saying he was never in a hurry is actually, that's part, that's definitely part of what I was asking. It's just that uh, well, love God and love your neighbor. But sometimes loving God and loving your neighbor means doing, doing your job well, uh, seriously. Um, you know, showing up on time to work and stuff like that. The, you never forget, that Sol- Solomon does not mention this, but he, he doesn't use the word fall. But he is describing uh, real life in the real world, which is cursed. We live in a cursed world. Um, it was cursed in chapter 3. There are things in this life that really ought not to happen the way they do, but they do because it's a cursed world. And they won't happen in the fullness of the kingdom of God, but we still have to deal with it. Um, this is not, this, this isn't it. And if you believe it's it, then, then you acquire a certain level of desperation, I think. Um, and yeah. You're just ticking towards doom, no matter what. Right. Um, Rachel, you had a question? Yeah. Um, how, uh, for me, the message seemed to be controversial. When you read what Solomon is saying in 11.9, Not, instructing uh, youth to enjoy. So... How can we help our young people to understand much better his message? Because if it is meaningless, and then you are instructing people to enjoy, theologically it is very hard. It makes someone understand this. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give some of, of the following lesson away. But so at the end, I think it's uh, chapter 11. It says, a young man, go out and just you know, enjoy yourself. <laughs> 
It does. You, uh, you know, do whatever your heart feels right. Just remember, God will call you into judgment. Now, at up to a certain age, and I'm not a child psychologist. I don't know what that age is. Um, children implicitly, completely trust their parents that whatever it is they say is the best thing for them. Now, that fades eventually. Um, and one of the first things children know how to say is no. Um, but after a point, um, they do have to be told, look, you can enjoy life, but you have to keep in mind that there really is a God and that seeking Him is really what the point of life is. Um, I'm not sure... I'm not sure it was the best advice uh, that I used to give to high school students, but I used to say, you all are going to do stupid things. I did say stupid. Uh, but you, you should try to not make them so stupid that, that it, you permanently damage yourself, your relationships, or your life. You know, there's a certain sense in which youth, well, like they say, youth is wasted on the young, but that youth is meant to try and figure out and explore things and gain independence. I'm talking about in a psychological way. But particularly, you know, parents of Christian youth, uh, particularly should guide them to understand that in everything that they do in life, um, if I have a child who, you know, wanted to, to fly around the world or even sail around the world or go bungee jumping, oh my goodness. I don't think anybody should bungee jump. That's just not why. why you jump off a cliff with a rubber band. On the other hand, I say that when I was young, I tried hang gliding once. Um, lucky I didn't kill myself. It says in 12.1, remember your creator in the days of your youth before. Right. Because you're going to get older and then you're going to be unhappy about your days. Right. So, and so. before that, he says, he, he tells young people, I'm paraphrasing, well, go ahead and follow your heart, but just remember everything you do, God's going to call into judgment. And remember your creator. Right. I mean, like, don't, don't, don't. Right. Yeah, don't, don't be young and. Stupid. Forsake your creator. Like, be young. Enjoy your creator because one day you're going to be old. You're not going to have your happy days. You're going to have unhappy days. You'll still remember the commandments of God and God's and God. So. Yeah, anyway, it's, it's good. Remember your um, And by the way, we'll, we'll talk more about this when we get to discussing death week after next, but we live in a culture that worships youth and denies death. So uh, we even attribute wisdom to youth now instead of to, to wiser, older people, seriously. Um, had the phenomenon of a 15-year-old autistic Swedish girl telling the United Nations what to do about climate change, even though she was neither a meteorologist nor a politician. Um, any other questions or comments? Well, thank you very much for coming, and next week we'll, we'll talk about eternity.